This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. My name is Damien Blasi, and today I'll be telling you about human languages and their cognitions. And I would like to start by telling you a little bit more about the general scope of my research and my program so far. So I'll be giving you some hints on the nature of language diversity. Depending on how you count and if you have to count, there is between 6,500 to over 8,000 languages spoken and signed in the world today. And of course, people have been amazed by this seeming regularities in the structure of languages that some call language universals. There is a number of features that we get to see in all or almost all languages, and those have gotten most of the attention by linguists, psychologists, anthropologists, and the like. But what I care the most about and what, I, what is the focus of my research is those dimensions where languages can vary, and sometimes they can vary quite a lot. There is, huge, uh, there is a huge number of ways in which this could happen. There might be differences in the type of speech sounds or signs that languages deploy. There might be differences in the type of rules that individuals have to use when engaging in conversation across different languages. There are differences in the type of information that has to be obligatorily conveyed when we produce uh, a valid utterance in a given language. There are differences in the basic concepts that are enshrined in the common vocabulary of a language. And as you can see here, a long, long, list of uh, dimensions that are of extreme interest for science in general. And of course, the most straightforward natural question upon realizing of this diversity is, where is this diversity coming from? And the most straightforward answer is that these languages are different because their histories are different. And one extremely important fact to keep in mind is that some of the largest language groups which are proxy by uh, common colors in the map that you can see uh, at the side of the slide. Those groups have diversified over the last 12,000 years and most likely within the, the second half of that period of time that we refer to as the Holocene. So for instance, if you take a, a language family such as Indo-European, you have languages like English, and Hindi, Spanish, French, Sinhalese, etc. All of those languages are believed to derive from a common ancestor that has existed uh, between six to 9,000 languages back in the past. And this is very important. The, the fact that these histories are different is crucial because this time period has been one of the most eventful periods in the history of our species period. Within the last 12,000 years, we went from living in small hunter-gatherer bands to large agglomerations of individuals that might end up paving the way for contemporary cities. We end up occupying all of the ecological niches that exist in the world. Uh, we developed large political experiments in the form of multinational empires. Uh, we have witnessed the emergence of moralizing high gods. We have seen the rise of a whole new communication modality as its written language, and a large, large number of other changes that have been crucial for defining what it means to be humans. And this is at the very core of my research program. I work towards producing, creating a science of language diversity that takes into account this recent history of languages that is heavily interdisciplinary, 
where linguistics is no more important than anthropology or cognitive science or history. And that is evolutionarily sound. I'm not going to discuss that last part, but I just wanted to get it out. Over the last decade, I've worked on um, a, a number of different projects uh, where I engage with different types of evidence from grammars of long dead languages to genetic evidence, material culture, historiographic records, ethnographies, et cetera, et cetera. And I've done work on not only on global linguistic diversity, but also on more regional scales. At the end of my presentation, I'm going to provide you with a link where you can go and check my work and, and see my, my papers for free. Now, on to the main message of my presentation here today. What I would like you to keep in mind at the end of this presentation is that there seems to be a behemoth language bias in AI. It shouldn't come as a surprise if I say that language technologies and the applications that come with them are at the cornerstone of the development of contemporary AI architectures. And there's going to be a number of presentations in this symposium that are going to address exactly that point, the centrality of language and language models to contemporary AI. So I'm not going to go over that. And I also don't think you'll be surprised if I told you that when it comes to scientific and technical fields where language plays a central role, and this could be anything from the study of language pathologies to the uh, development of literacy interventions and language technologies themselves, there is a clear bias favoring those developments in large and influential languages, which I refer to as behemoth languages. Uh, among those, the English language ranks very high up and it's a language that has received the most attention and the most scientific and technical development of them all. What happens is when we take these developments that are native to English and other behemoth languages, and we take them to other smaller, presumably different languages, we get to see that the quality of those techniques, those findings, those procedures get impoverished sometimes drastically. So when we move those resources from English to other languages, we get to see that, for instance, we arrive to uh, less accurate medical diagnosis. We get uh, lower scores in educational and other type of intellectual testing. We have poorer access to high quality information and along, et cetera. And of course, language technologies are not an exception. So last year, my colleagues and I published a paper when we surveyed the total amount of developments in language technologies across the world's languages. And what we found is that English and other behemoth languages monopolize over 80% of all of the developments in the field. And as you can see, most of the other behemoth languages are Western European languages as well. And again, I don't think you'll be surprised if I told you that the main predictor of the development of language technologies in a language is not the number of users who could benefit from that development, but instead the, say, economic centrality the language has associated with it. So the more money the users of a language have, the more likely is that uh, better and more language technologies will be developed. And in, that, in this regard, we can think, well, Language technologies are the base of are the basis of AI. So we will expect that with more resources and a, with a more equitable world, we'll get to see better AI being deployed for more and more languages. And I think there's some truth to that. 
And I would and I would say that it's a second dimension that hasn't received as much attention as this one. In order to understand this core idea, I need to describe briefly. There's this two ways in which we analyze AI systems. First, we study the performance of these systems. Let's say, for instance, that I train a visual network to classify paintings. So I can ask whether the uh, AI system is doing its job by correctly classifying, in this case, for instance, the Mona Lisa as such. But then there's a second category of analysis that have to do with the study of the representational and developmental biases that these systems produce while trying to solve the task at hand. Let me give you one particular example. In the case of the classification of the Mona Lisa with the system that we just introduced, we can ask what are the features that this system is latching into? For instance, it might be the case that this network is looking at a random collection of pixels around the painting and it's coming up to the decision. Or that instead is considering this picture and it's breaking it down into objects that look very familiar for humans, like bodies and hands and a grin and eyes, et cetera, et cetera. That would be a representation analysis of the AI system. Now, in both cases, we tend to compare the performance, the representations, and the developmental biases that these AI systems have with their human counterparts. And I'm not using human as such, I'm using human asterisk. And with this, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. I refer to those humans who speak or sign a behemoth language. Let me give you two specific examples of what the problems of this are. But before, I'm going to refer to what I think it's a very important and not very widely known fact of languages and language diversity. This is an idea that has been around for a long time and has been very controversial at times. But I would say that in 2023, there is enough evidence to make the claim that the language one speaks or sign have a number of important consequences for cognition well beyond language itself. So the language you speak or sign might affect the nature or the type of computations and representations you're performing with your head. It might impact social cognition and how you conceptualize others and yourself in relation to them. It might affect the way in which you break down uh, sequences of causal events uh, or memory more in general. Uh, it might affect uh, visual attention, auditory attention, and many, many other aspects of, of cognition that we tend to believe have little to do with language. And this, as I was saying before, has a number of important consequences for how we evaluate and study AI systems under comparison to humans. First example I want to give is a very straightforward one, and that has to do with large language models, which are the perhaps the most famous and the most important uh, example of uh, deep neural networks that are deployed for the context of language. And what we know is that most of these large language models are trained on this next word prediction task or something that is very similar. What I mean with this is that these AI systems are trained so that given a sequence of words, they're able to predict either the next word or the next sequence of words. And just by training a system to do that on a large data set, uh, ends up with frankly very impressive performance that we are all enjoying today with say chat GPT. And this is very surprising because for a long time we expected that any good performing 
language AI as these large language models would have needed some type of linguistic prior on it. Like for instance, we should tell the system that some things are nouns and some things are verbs or that this is a phrase, but it was much simpler than that. Just training AI systems on this next word prediction task lead to incredible results. What we can do then is to compare the performance of this human's asterisk with the performance and the behavior of these large language models. And it turns out they seem to be very aligned, even more so than when compared in other tasks. So let me put it in simpler terms. What seems that what humans are doing and what these machines are doing is in many respects, in the respects that we can, we can measure and observe, very similar. And this has led to a number of very intriguing and very exciting questions. For instance, maybe there is something that these large language models Maybe there's something about these large language models when they are being trained on data that is similar to a type of learning that takes place in the head of actual humans. Or the way around, it might be the case that this similarity is telling you something deeper about the connection between large language models and humans. Maybe humans, when acquiring and developing language, are solving something that is similar to the next word prediction task as these machines do. So that should be super exciting because it means that we can study the structure of language by looking at these networks instead of looking at the networks of actual humans, at least in some regards. The problem or the limitation is that it seems that prediction and this eagerness for prediction that we get to see in humans doesn't seem to generalize to all languages we have access to. And again, there's no time to go into the linguistic details, but there are some languages like Turkish where it seems that it's much less important to make predictions about the next word rather than coming up with a model of the entire sentence as it unfolds over time. So this is, again, very important because it could be telling us that there might be different ways in which humans can arrive to the system. And one of those could be prediction, but that's not the exclusive one. The second example I want to discuss with you today have to do with the so-called convolutional neural networks, which are the most famous architecture for visual AI that we have access to. And again, there's no time for me to describe how it actually works, but this is the standard architecture for tasks such as the one I introduced before, which is say the classification of paintings or natural images. Now we could, uh, consider the following thought experiment. Let's say that I train my CNN and this CNN observes this object that is labeled as a DAX, right? So there's a, a picture, this object appears and it's labeled as being a DAX. Then I can ask my system after training, which one of these objects is more likely of being classified as a DAX? And if you can see, there's two objects that have different types of similarities with the original DAX I introduced. The one at the very right of the, sequ the sequence shares the same texture as the original DAX, but a different shape. Instead, the second to last shares the same shape, but it has a different texture. And something that is very, very interesting is that when we train CNNs on large data sets of natural occurring images, we get to see uh, a clearly emerging shape bias. But instead, when we look into humans' asterisk behavior, we get to see a very clear shape bias arising instead. And again, we encounter the same situation where there is, um, this will be the complementary situation as the one I introduced before, because in this case, there is no match between humans' asterisk and AI systems. Instead, there is a mismatch. And this led people to think, well, maybe 
we can instill this shape bias into CNNs and we see what happens. And what happens is that this CNNs seem to be performing better when they are informed by shape bias than by their native uh, texture bias. This is very interesting because you put something you find in humans in an AI system and suddenly it's performing better. And this leads to all kinds of natural questions about why is that shape bias exists to start with? So some people have suggested, for instance, that shape bias might be something like a marginally optimal solution when you have to communicate about objects in the real world. But again, here is language diversity uh, coming up with counterexamples. For instance, speakers of Chimane, which is a language found in Bolivia, have found either to exhibit a very weakened version of the shape bias or to go for other features that have nothing to do with shape at all. And this two examples illustrate the main takeaway message that I want to share and discuss with you today, which is comparing humans and machines in the context of AI is extremely important and a very productive endeavor. And we could come up with better AI for a number of tasks, some of which are important now and some of which might become very important in the future. But I think by overfitting our comparisons to whatever speakers of behemoth languages, and very in particular English, we are losing track of all of this luxurious diversity that happens outside of the places that we have studied more extensively so far. So I'm quite sure there is a number of amazing discoveries about ways in which humans can conceive, represent, and compute uh, different types of information that we haven't uncovered yet and those lie in languages other than the behemoth languages. And with this, I want to thank you and thank all the organizers for this amazing event. And here's my contact details and you have access to my emails. And I look forward to keeping this discussion going on. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.com.